It's a pleasure to introduce you to our illustrious panel for the uh, cell and gene therapy uh, discussion. Uh, let me start on the left with uh, Tom Auberg. Tom's a founding partner of Retina Specialists of Michigan and Chief Medical Officer at Neurotech, which is uh, a company at a very exciting uh, stage right now where they're going to have the results of their dual phase three studies looking at uh, treatment for MACTEL using their NT501 uh, implant. So that's very exciting. Uh, Paul Bresky, uh, CEO of optogenetics company Ray Therapeutics. Uh, he's also former CEO of cell therapy company JSite. So bringing uh, much perspective to this discussion. Uh, Claire Gelfman is chief scientific officer of the Foundation Fighting Blindness. She has a very long history in pharmaceutical development in companies such as Adverum, Elpath and Lexicon Pharmaceuticals. And one of the smartest people I've ever met, Glenn Yu, professor of ophthalmology at UC Davis. He is a brilliant researcher, active in both benchtop uh, and clinical research. He maintains a, a medical and surgical retina practice. So he is truly the quadruple threat in the most positive way. So thank you all for being here. Paul, let me start with you. You know, optogenetics, boy, it's like, seemingly come out of nowhere. You know, we were not talking about this uh, several years ago. Now there are lots of companies in this space. Ray Therapeutics, one of the more recent companies. Tell me a little bit about how these companies are differentiating themselves from one another and also from other companies in gene therapy and cell therapy. And maybe start with, for the folks that aren't familiar with optogenetics, maybe you can give them a high-level um, idea of what that's all about, the mechanism okay. of action. Sure. Can, okay, everyone can hear me? Um, so, I mean, the, the premise behind optogenetics is that, um, I mean, biologists have known for years that uh, certain microbes, such as algae, have the ability to move towards and away from light. Um, so with modern molecular engineering, uh, scientists have been able to synthesize those proteins and then use gene therapy to um, express those channel proteins uh, in human cells making them uh, responsive to light. So in the case of Ray, we're targeting the retinal ganglion cells. So that's, uh, that's the basic premise behind it. And then in terms of the differentiation between gene, traditional gene therapy and cell therapies and uh, optogenetics, um, I mean, the, the cell and gene therapy programs are very exciting, obviously, and very promising for patients, but they do have some limitations uh, with respect to gene therapy, of course, uh, the fact that it's targeted um, genes. And um, then within cell and gene therapy, uh, they're primarily um, trying to stop the progression of disease. But that leaves like an entire patient population who is blind or almost blind uh, without many options. So with optogenetics, uh, first it's agnostic to the genetic mutation. So it addresses a very broad uh, patient population. And then the um, idea is to actually restore functional vision. Uh, so um, complementary and, and different approach. Um, what got me so excited about Ray in particular was that um, the technology behind it, we're able to restore uh, vision to about 50% of uh, acuity in the mouse model. And we think that that will translate to very meaningful uh, uh, outcomes for patients. Also, in terms of clinical development, um, 
as we all know, sometimes the uh, clinical outcomes can be complicated and can take a while. With optogenetics, we, we expect to see very quick results within a matter of months and sustained um, results from a one-time treatment. Um, also, you know, hopefully, um, you know, with, with the exciting work that's going on, um, it will address, you know, again, a very large patient population. And in the case of Ray, again, um, we think that our um, protein is so light sensitive. That's really the differentiating um, feature between the different programs that patients will not have to use goggles in order to navigate in low light conditions. So sorry, there was a bit of a mouthful, but it was uh, a few questions packed into one. No, that was perfect. And I just want to make sure we hit on this. Uh, what do you anticipate the primary endpoint to be in the upcoming trials? Well, that's a, a good question. And we have an ad board on Friday with the most respected, um, you know, some of the most respected uh, clinicians to discuss that. But uh, we're anticipating it will be uh, visual acuity, visual field, and uh, some sort of a low luminance maze. Mm -hmm. um, which are, of course, all known to the agencies. And so looking at these end-stage patients, if, if they're starting with count fingers vision, how, what type of improvements do you expect to see with these? Yeah, great question. I mean, we're, we're hoping and expect to see improvements somewhere around uh, to, to restore vision to around 2150. But I've recently seen some publications where there are predictions that um, optogenetics could uh, be effective enough to give patients uh, vision back to around 2050. So again, I know it is quite remarkable. Huge. Okay. So thank you. So Tom, let's move on to you. So exciting time for Neurotech. I mean, the, the technology, the platform that you guys have is really interesting. It's a drug device platform, encapsulated cell therapy, genetically modified RPE cells that produce CNTF. It's a durable product complex, right? So what are some of the issues that you guys have faced with developing this and how have you managed that? Uh, okay, good. This is working. So, you know, we, we've had a couple uh, challenges. That the first is on the CMC side and the other side of the equation is the clinical operations side. So on the CMC side, first we had to find the appropriate cell lines. So we went through dozens of cell lines looking for hardiness, uh, transfect, transfectability, uh, as well as uh, cell contact inhibition growth. Um, and once we were able to find that, we had to find a scaffold on which these cells could survive and thrive. And we looked at uh, foam scaffolds and microsphere scaffolds and gel scaffolds and then long strand scaffolds which is what we ended with and then finally had to pack it in to a, a membrane, a container uh, for which there was a variable pore size so a pore size that we could adjust such that it would allow the uh, production of whatever drug we're making to diffuse out of the device while uh, cell nutrients could come in to keep the cells uh, surviving uh, and create a barrier between the cells and the host immune system. So we, we were able to get through all of that and uh, we, we have this device that now looks about the size of uh, risotto. Um, on the other side, the clinical operations side, this was a big challenge uh, for us, because particularly in terms of MACTEL. 
Uh, we've been doing this for a while, and you have to look at it through the lens of the time that we we're designing this. And at the time, the FDA uh, for ophthalmology trials was relying on visual acuity outcomes for their primary outcomes. Well, in MACTEL, these patients lose one letter of Snellen acuity, not one line, one letter of Snellen acuity on average every year. So having visual acuity as a primary endpoint just would prevent us from getting across the FDA's finish line. Uh, with the advent of high-resolution OCT, we could demonstrate how the ellipsoid zone defect progressed in these patients and how that would correspond to the paracentral scotomas these patients developed. Um, and, and using that information, I believe we were the first, or one of the first, uh, pharmaceutical companies to um, have the FDA allow a clinically meaningful anatomic outcome as a primary endpoint. So that was a huge win for us. Excellent. And, and so you, those were some of the challenges that you talked about with these implants. What are some of the benefits that you see surrounding these implants? So uh, there, there's uh, a number of benefits. We've been using, we've, we've existed actually for almost two decades. So um, we, we have a very long history with this device. We know it is very safe. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, this device is implanted via three millimeter parse plane incision. It's a straightforward surgery, similar to putting in a retisert implant, a surgery that many retina specialists are familiar with and comfortable with, so there isn't gonna be a huge learning curve. Uh, the, the encapsulated cells, um, they are immortal. Uh, so they will continue to produce drug so long as this device is in the eye. So th this could be a, a one and done type of treatment uh, for patients. Uh, the device, like I said, it, it produces drug continuously. There is no drug decay like we have with many of our other uh, sustained delivery devices. Um, and they're very versatile. Uh, we could potentially create any protein, uh, any pep peptide, any biologic agent uh, that we want to create. Uh, and finally, it's reversible. Uh, you can easily explant this device. Um, and, you know, unlike some of the gene therapies, uh, I don't know if something goes wrong, how you would reverse that. Uh, but this, you can just pull it out. Very good. So let me move on to you, Glenn. Um, You've done a lot of research looking at uh, biodistribution and immunogenicity associated with uh, different routes of administration of AAV um, gene therapy, delivery for gene therapy. Can you talk, are there any generalizations you can make about transduction through the different routes, you know, intravitreal, supracoroidal, subretinal? With yeah, so um, in terms of, uh, and thank you for the introduction, but um, in terms of transduction, uh, biodistribution, transduction efficiency, um, whenever, most retina specialists are very familiar with intravitreal injections because it's easy to do, you can do it in clinic. 
Uh, but generally, viral particles, most AAV serotypes cannot penetrate the internal limiting membrane barrier. So transduction efficiency is generally low, even though the viral particles can theoretically get around to all parts of the eye, but it doesn't penetrate into the retina well. There are some serotypes that are engineered to do that, um, and so those are um, showing some promise in early phase trials. With subretinal injections, you manually bypass that internal limiting membrane barrier. So you stick a needle right through. It's a much more difficult to, uh, to um, uh, perform surgery. And the limitation is that you're limited to this bleb that you're creating because it's hard to create a very large bleb um, in, in a patient. Uh, Supercoidal is a very relatively novel delivery mode because you have essentially these microneedles that are just long enough to penetrate the sclera without perforating into the retina uh, or into the vitreous cavity. Um, and at first when we did some early studies, we actually worried about it not getting to where it is supposed to go because of the high flow state of the choroid. But what we found indeed was actually it really gives a nice, uh, very broad distribution within the supercoidal space. Um, and it's actually pretty well confined in the eye and doesn't leak into systemic circulation as well. So I would say that um, subretinal probably gives you the highest level of transduction, a very focused small blood area. Intravitreal, unless you have these newer generations of AAV, it's going to be hard to penetrate into the retina. And the supercoidal, I think, is probably a little bit lower levels of transduction, but over overall a broader area because of the way it kind of diffuses around the periphery. So one of the things that we you know, get concerned about anytime we do these types of intraocular or periocular therapies is one, you know, the production of neutralizing antibodies that will re reduce the efficacy, and two, inflammation. We always worry about that. So can you make any generalizations about the likelihood of that with, associated with these different rounds? Yeah, so I think immunogenicity is always a, a big question, and a lot of people have cited uh, some of our papers look, showing uh, inflammation after, let's say, supercortical delivery. But I think what's important to understand is that not all inflammation is the same. Uh, you can develop inflammation to the viral vector. You can develop inflammation to the, uh, de the cargo you're delivering. So if you're delivering a protein that's like a humanized uh, uh, antibody, then it's less likely to be immunogenic, the cargo, than if you're de uh, developing, let's, uh, delivering, let's say, a uh, uh, optogenetic actuator that's bacterial in origin or CRISPR enzymes, which are also bacterial in origin. Uh, and it turns out, for example, when you do a subretinal injection, the viral particles stay in the confined area of the subretinal space, which is pretty immune privileged, whereas intravitreal injections tend to leak into the systemic circulation, so you develop more immunogenicity to the viral vector. Whereas with supercortical injection, the viral particles stay inside the eye but the cargo is being expressed, a lot of it outside the blood retinal barrier, which is in the, like in the sclera and stuff, and that could develop more immunogenicity to the cargo. So in cases like the Regenix bio platform, um, they didn't see much inflammation, probably because they're not expressing GFP like in our monkey studies, uh, which are highly immunogenic, and they're expressing a humanized protein. So I think it depends a lot on what you know, your product, what your cargo you're trying to deliver is, uh, deliver it, what type of cells you're trying to get into that will determine the relative success of these different routes. Thank you. So Claire, you, you, you used to be in pharma development. You were as far away from patients as you could probably get. Now, as Chief Scientific Officer at Foundation Fighting Blindness, you're very much interfacing with patients. And I'm always curious about you know, the perception of patients of these new emerging classes of cell therapy and gene therapy, right? These can be kind of scary words, 
and terms, and, and we don't get a sense of that, I think, as much in the office in a general sense. Have you gotten a sense in your interactions at the meetings you have and the exposure you have to these patients about, are they concerned about it? Is it a scary idea, or are they embracing anything that might help them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, we're at Foundation Fighting Blindness, we're uniquely poised for that reason, that we're in front of all this great innovative science through the work that we fund. Um, but we also are privy to the patients who we ultimately want to be treating. And, you know, in my role, I have a lot of interactions with them. And I think frequently it depends on uh, sort of the level of disease that a person is harboring. Um, if someone is losing their vision, they're going to be pretty motivated to learn about whatever can help immediately. If someone has been given a diagnosis, but their visual acuity has not really begun to falter, they might be a little bit more wary of it. And it's really all about communicating what the opportunities are for both cell and gene therapies between the patient and the physician. But they also come to us to look at what we fund that we see to be what's going to be innovative with respect to cell and gene therapies. Now, with gene therapies, because we've got the success of Lexterna, it's the concept is proven. Um, so I think people are a lot more willing to think about a gene therapy approach because it's working in a subset of, of individuals, um, and it really paves the way for uh, a viral-mediated delivery of a gene that's otherwise mutated in this small patient population. With cell therapies, it's a little trickier because we don't really have clinical proof of concept yet, but it's close. And so it's really all about that educational component and explaining that at length with the individuals that we hope to treat. So Foundation Fighting Blindness, I think, is probably one of the least appreciated, wonderful resources that we have. And so can you talk just a little bit about what you guys do to help patients that are newly diagnosed, but also how can physicians and industry leverage everything that Foundation Fighting Blindness has? Yes. Yeah, so um, it's, I think it's important to note that the Foundation, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, and we really cover the gamut. Our, our mission statement is to fund the best research uh, in the fields of inherited retinal diseases and dry AMD that will lead to preventions, treatments, and cures. And so what typically happens in real time is that someone will get a diagnosis from their physician, from their ophthalmologist, and the first thing they do when they get home is go to the internet and type in the name of their disease, and then Foundation Fighting Blindness comes up. And what can really help from the patient perspective to learn about what's happening in the clinic, what the potential trials are, for a physician to then put in a request for genetic testing so the molecular basis for this clinical diagnosis can be investigated. And that's really important because through the foundation, we actually offer that genetic testing free of charge through our partners. And it gets better than that. Even having a genetic test result can be daunting, even for those of us in the field. So we also offer, through the foundation, free genetic counseling through our open access program to help patients and their families really dissect and digest what this means, not just yeah, whether or not you can identify your causative gene, but what it means for the rest of your family, if it's X-linked, how that might affect future generations. And then we take that even one step further, and all that information then gets into our registry, which, by the way, is over 21,000 strong, 
about half of which have a genetic diagnosis report through testing. And the reason why that's so important and speaks to a lot of the industry, the companies here today, is that we partner with companies who would like a centralized resource for enrollment in clinical trials. I mean, this can be a very expensive, lengthy part of the process. And so by coming to the foundation, we have many types of partnerships where companies will leverage all the individuals in our database to find, you know, patient enrollment is so important in terms of poising a trial for success. It's not just a specific mutation. It can, it can, there's so many other parameters that can be dissected and mined through a large centralized database that what we offer. And it can also be helpful for enrolling in natural history studies to learn more about potential endpoints to then present to the FDA, you know, based on what patients uh, are actually experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, you know, it's something that from the viewpoint of the ophthalmologist to make that initial recommendation and submit for genetic testing to get that information into a source that can be leveraged by companies that are running the trials to quickly, efficiently, and less expensively find the right patients for the trial so that we can poise those trials for success. Yeah, it's really, it's an unbelievable resource, and certainly from the physician's standpoint, to be able to get do genetic testing or obtain genetic testing in the office, and as someone without big backgrounds in, you know, genetics, speak to someone to get more up-to-date, but also refer the patient to them for those explanations, so that's terrific. The other important thing that you, that FFB has been doing since 2018 is the venture arm, which is really interesting. It's a natural expansion of what they do. Can you talk a little bit to, to the companies in the audience that are, everybody is looking for money, what the process is for making them attractive to FFB? Sure. It's actually um, something that's very unique about our foundation that we have this venture philanthropic arm. You don't see that in a lot of nonprofit companies, but it's important because if you think about, you know, what we fund, we've for years, for over 50 years now, we've been supporting a lot of the early stage research that comes out of academic groups. We also fund through our translational research acceleration program, more later stage programs and companies. Um, but then, you know, you reach a point where you're at the pre-IND stage or you're looking to start your first clinical trial and you need investment. And so we have a venture philanthropic arm, as you said, John, since 2018, where we invest in companies that we feel are going to really help patients uh, in our space to meet those unmet medical needs. Um, so a couple of things we look for, obviously a very strong management team with individuals who are experienced in developing drugs in this space. Uh, we are also looking for programs uh, kind of between the pre-IND to the early clinical stage. Um, and then, you know, we're always looking for innovative technologies that have gotten some earlier validation, whether it be in animodels or even early proof of concept. And we're, we're geographic agnostic. We are indication agnostic. It's really about good science that's gotten to a good point that needs that extra push. So we invest in those companies. We then, what the return on that investment comes back to the foundation to further our mission to fund this work uh, within our scope for that of inherited retinal diseases and dry AMD to get to the point of an approval for you know this huge unmet medical need uh, that really defines our, our scope. 
Fabulous. Well, thank you. I think that pretty much fills up our time. I don't want us to stand between the audience and lunch a moment longer. So thank you to our panelists and enjoy lunch. <laughs>